From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE can help you manage your money in different currencies. With WISE, you can send money to your cousin in Australia with ease, travel internationally without having to brave an airport currency exchange desk, and take away the guesswork that goes along with converting currencies. WISE lets you send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate, all without any hidden fees. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E dot com, WISE dot com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hello, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Hey, Max. Hello, hello. Max, what, uh, what have you got for us this week on the show? This week on the show feels like a slightly different episode. My guest is Mega Rajagopalan, who writes for BuzzFeed News. And you guys may be familiar with her because she just won the Pulitzer Prize. She is a foreign correspondent. She spent almost her entire career in China. She got there like right after the financial crash. And she was reporting in the country for a long time. And then a couple years ago, she wrote a story about these camps where many ethnic minorities, including Uyghurs, are being interned in the western part of the country. So she wrote this piece about one of these camps, and then she was kicked out of China. Her visa wasn't renewed. It was quite dramatically so. Like, she was out of the country and had been assured she'd be able to get back in and then wasn't allowed back in. So her life was just there and taken away from her. And the work that she won the Pulitzer for was instead of being like, all right, well, I've been kicked out of China. I guess I should go find something else to report on. She kept reporting on these camps. And she ended up doing this incredible four-part series where she reported out what was happening there without being there. And she did a bunch of it through satellite imagery. And we get into how she did that reporting in the interview, but it's really just, it's incredible. And that decision to sort of keep reporting that story without being able to be in the country, I don't know, it's pretty impressive. And, you know, along with with several other journalists, she's led this coverage uncovering what is the largest genocide since World War II. Over a million people are in these camps. There's no paperwork. There's no documentation. It's just staggering. And it was really, really fascinating to talk to her about how she's done it. Our sponsor this week, as always, is MailChimp. If you're thinking about starting an email newsletter, personal, for your job, for your project, for your business, do it with MailChimp. They are future-proof. That's, uh, that's the thing I've been thinking about recently that is so great about MailChimp. And now here's Max with Mega Rajagopal. Mega, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for doing this. Thanks so much for having me on. Where are you right now? I'm in London. I'm in my apartment. And that's where you're based? 
Yep, I live in London. Um, yeah, I've been here for, oh my gosh, almost a year and a half now. Where were you before? Um, I was in Tel Aviv immediately before, where I spent about a year or so. And before that, I was in Sydney for a short time, and then before that in China. I want to talk to you about the end of your time in China. But first, I'm interested in how you landed there. And how did you get so interested in China? You know, it's very strange to think about because and sometimes in life you make one decision and then it leads to 10, which is <laughs> sort of what happened to me. I'm from Maryland originally. Uh, I'm from the suburbs of Baltimore. And uh, when I was growing up, I wanted to, you know, write children's books or like, you know, I wanted to be a writer, but I really didn't think too much about journalism. And then, you know, when I was in college, I worked at the school paper. I was very interested in like beat reporting and, you know, I wanted to be a cops reporter like... David Simon was before he to the wire, which I guess everybody at the University of Maryland wants to be. But then uh, <laughs> somehow there was this scholarship to study abroad at Hong Kong University that was available my senior year. And I found out that nobody else had applied to this scholarship. So I thought that I would apply. That was sort of the start because I just got very interested in how journalism is done in like countries that are very different from the US, uh, particularly China, where there at the time was an authoritarian government, but one that left a lot of room for journalists to explore, you know, a variety of topics that weren't considered to be the most sensitive topics in the country. So you're telling me that you ended up in Hong Kong mostly because you heard there was a scholarship that you could win because it was like a, a no contest race? Pretty much. I mean, it was senior year. Like, I kind of went on a lark, to be honest. Like, I just thought it would be fun. Like, I wasn't thinking, you know, I'm going to go there and then stay, be in and out for the next, like, seven years. Like, that, that was not what I was thinking. Were you interested in China specifically? Or was it more like, this seems like a way that I can get to some other place? Initially, more the latter. But when I was there, like Hong Kong U, particularly their journalism department, is considered like a very prestigious place for students from mainland China to go and study. And um, as a consequence, I met a lot of Chinese journalism students. And because it was so difficult to get into the university, they were like extremely smart, like very well-read people. My roommate at the time was a Chinese student from Sichuan province who um, ended up working in human rights law later in Cambodia. She's a very brilliant person. And um, just talking to them got me so interested in how journalism was done in China. And I just like, I just got the bug. I just wanted to go back and, um, and do more really. And for you, when you were there, I mean, it sounds like you sort of caught this bug for the country, but how did you learn the language? Like, how did you navigate becoming a foreign correspondent in China? Yeah. So basically, after I left for that semester, I just wanted to go back. So I started applying to internships and I ended up getting an internship at Time Magazine in their Hong Kong office. They had an Asia edition back then. And um, they had a really great bureau, but it became clear to me that if I wanted to continue um, pursuing journalism in China, I had better at least try to learn the language. And a lot of people told me, don't bother because it's very difficult, which actually turned out to be really bad advice. So if anyone listening is thinking about learning Chinese, you really should. It's not as difficult as it's made out to be, I don't think. But um, basically, I self-studied for a while. Then I got a scholarship to go and study in Shanghai at a university there. So I did that for a few months. And then I went back to the States to work for a year. And then later when I returned to China, I did it on a Fulbright fellowship. The Fulbright gives you extra money to do like intensive study. So I did that um, at a university in Beijing. It was a really good program. It was like six hours a day of Chinese. And uh, that's like all I did for like 
six months or a year or something. And then the last thing is I, I got a lot better during my first job in China, which was at Reuters, because I had to cover a lot of like diplomatic events and like press conferences and stuff, which involved translating almost in the moment. It sounds like you kept finding ways to get back to China. Can you articulate what that draw was? So they hosted the Olympics in 2008, and it was just this incredible moment for the country. Like people were so optimistic. It was like China was opening up. It was like the kind of coming out party for the rest of the world. And this was around the time when the kind of frontline news stories about China were almost all economic. It was a story about growth. It was about millions of people entering the middle class. Um, it was about the building of amazing public infrastructure, like high-speed railways. There were all these really incredible things that were happening. And, you know, I was a student too at the time, and I knew a lot of young people who were like very excited about the future. And then if you look back at where I came from, like the U.S. in the midst of the financial crisis, obviously the financial crisis affected China as well, but to a lesser degree, I think, than um, the U.S. and much of Europe. So it was a lousy job market. And the idea of being in China at a time like this, it felt momentous. It felt like a really cool moment to be a journalist there. And I kind of wanted some of that excitement, I think. And I was, yeah, I mean, I was really genuinely interested in the country and the story. I, I, most of the, the first four years I was there, I didn't write that much about human rights. Like I did to some extent, but I think my, my view sort of started to shift, I think, um, in my last couple of years there. So if I hear you correctly, like you were drawn to this place, it seemed like it had momentum. It was exciting. The stories were generally quite positive. It felt like ascendant in a way that maybe the states didn't, plus the job market in the states was fucked anyway, so who cares? And then something started to turn. When was that and what precipitated that for you? Like, how did it start to change? Yeah, I mean, it depends whether you're asking whether it turned for the country or for myself. I think that obviously, because it's my perspective, like I feel in myself that the two things are linked, but of course they're not. But um, for our purposes here, let's say they're linked. Yeah. OK, so I guess. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm not sure if there was a turning point per se, but I think after Xi Jinping came into power, he made sort of very clear that he had a certain set of priorities, one of which was ensuring that the people that he trusted, like his closest acolytes, were the people that were around him and the people that held power. Another thing he did was really crush all of the room that there was for Chinese journalists to um, do good reporting and to express themselves. And, you know, of course, another thing that I guess we'll talk about is the campaigning against ethnic minorities. And that includes Uyghurs, but it also includes people like ethnic Mongols, like Tibetans, Hui Muslims, and others. It just turned into a kind of a lot more of a claustrophobic kind of repressive place than I had ever imagined it would be. Right. So there's like these huge sweeping political factors that are changing what you believed to be the truth about where the country was headed. How does that interact with your like day to day reporting life as a young reporter? You know what I mean? Like it's it's interesting to me that you just sort of went to this sort of 30,000 foot view of these giant political trends. But you're just there working for Reuters, trying to figure out, I assume, like who you are as a reporter and what you want to be covering. And so I guess I'm interested in like for you personally, how did you feel that effect and how did it change your work? I think the biggest frustration point, I think not just for me, but probably for all reporters in China, is just lack of access. Like, it's just so 
hard to build sources and talk to people like it's really hard and i think to be fair a big part of that is because a lot of the journalists that are based there don't speak chinese uh, and work with assistants so of course that's naturally going to make it harder to build sources but there's another part of it that really is just like in every institution in which you would want to build sources all of the incentives are running counter to people speaking to journalists right like people get in serious trouble for talking to journalists especially if it's a foreign journalist if they do talk to you it's going to be in english anyway so there's mm -hmm. zero benefit to their career or like whatever the reasons are that people talk to journalists in dc just like doesn't exist for them like there are exceptions to this but um that like i think became more of the rule than the exception when i first started working there it was impossible for someone like me who was coming in fresh at that time to make sources you know at a, at a high level of government or anything like that but i could if i was going to like a town or something outside of beijing to do a story i could contact government officials there like i'm you know I, you might have to do it through friends of friends of friends or something like that but you could basically contact people and take them out to lunch and stuff like that you could talk to people in think tanks you could talk to even people in government sometimes uh you know, people in universities and stuff like that the longer i stayed there sort of the harder that became and mm -hmm. i think for journalists that's very frustrating because yeah. we like to talk to people you know we don't like to sit behind a computer and like google stuff but um that sort of became a bigger part of the job i think as a consequence of the problems with access and how did you do that? I mean, I understand that the conditions were easier, but how did you personally develop sources when there was like no upside for people to talk to you? So one of the things I had to learn is that China, like a lot of countries, like people really don't like to use email. And I actually, I have to say, I kind of agree with that. Like it's, it's a weird <laughs> medium. So like, I, you know, when I first showed up, I was like emailing people like, do you want to have coffee and whatever? But like, basically I ended up doing what a lot of people do, which is um, I just went to a lot of events. I would try to go like every single reception. Do you like that stuff? Are you like a social person? Is that a good time for you? I mean, I, in the beginning, I really liked it because it forced me to get a lot better at Chinese and stuff like that. I mean, honestly, it's, there's no alternative, I think. Like you basically, you really have to meet people face to face. Like for me, like coming in and doing that, like everyone has to have their angle, right? So like my angle was like, I want to like shock and awe you with either my knowledge or like my command of the language at least. Because not to say that my Chinese is that amazing, like it's really not. But um, I just do think that the expectations that most people in China have for foreigners that are learning their language are very low, which is like very kind of them. But um, it, it does mean that like, you know, if I go and like I'm having a, a cogent conversation about an issue that is important to that person in Chinese, they're a lot more likely to take me mm -hmm. seriously and like trust me. So yeah, I would just go to like, like lots of events, especially in the beginning when I didn't know anyone. And then I was also lucky because there were some colleagues in uh, the Reuters newsroom that passed on sources to me, like took me along to meetings and stuff like that. And um, that was always really helpful. Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? 
Want travel money without having to slog through the currency exchange kiosk? Then WISE might just be your answer. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE takes the guesswork out of converting currencies. You can send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate with no markups and no hidden fees. In 2023, people sent over $100 billion worldwide with WISE. What's more, over half of those transfers got to their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Whether you're traveling, sending money abroad, or doing business, let WISE help you manage your money in different currencies with ease. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E.com, WISE.com. Calling all female runners, it's time to lace up and join Team Milk. Since the 2022 New York City Marathon, Team Milk has sponsored female marathon runners nationwide, providing support and shining a spotlight on their unique stories, perseverance, and drive to go the distance. Why milk? Dairy milk is an excellent nutritional ad for both marathon training and recovery. Milk contains 13 essential nutrients, including high-quality protein, making it a crucial component of a training diet. Plus, it's one of the best beverages for hydration, even better than water. The same electrolytes that are added to many of your favorite sports drinks are found naturally in milk. And in 2024, Team Milk is taking the next step to empower female runners by launching the only women's marathon in the U.S. designed for and by women. Built to be accessible, empowering, and community building, the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. So you're going to all these events, you're meeting all these people, the story that's being told about the country is either changing or never was really true in the first place, but it's not in some ascendant opening trajectory, but it's actually starting to close down. Your work is getting harder. It's harder to find sources. It's harder to do the work. Why stay? What kept you there? Basically, I did four years at Reuters. I more or less decided that I wanted to try to do something else just because after a certain point in any job, you reach a plateau, I guess. But then BuzzFeed approached me and they wanted to open a China bureau at that time. And they wanted somebody who already sort of had the ability to do that, like me- meaning they had already been based in the country and understood like, you know, what that would mean from a bureaucratic standpoint and would be able to like jump into the job and stuff like that. So they sort of pitched that job to me as uh, one where I would have a pretty broad remit and be able to cover stories in other parts of Asia. They didn't have anyone in East Asia on that team at the time. So to me, like that was a really good opportunity because uh, it enabled me to go and cover other countries that I was interested in, that I had done some work on at Reuters, but not sort of substantial work. And to be able to do that in greater depth in kind of a cadence that allowed me a little more time than I would have had at Reuters and like at greater length as well. So that's why it kind of ended up staying. And then um, I don't think I would have stayed forever, but I also, um, it was very unexpected to lose my visa as well. 
I'm glad that you brought up the end of your time in China because that's such a big part of why I wanted to talk to you. But before we get there, can you just give me the sort of primer on what's happening in Xinjiang and what you've been trying to document? So Xinjiang is a region of China. It's on the border of Central Asia. You've got a population of something like 24 million people there. About half of those are from the majority Han Chinese ethnic group. That's the dominant ethnic group in China. And the other half are made up of Muslim minority groups, uh, the overwhelming majority of which are Uyghur Muslims, uh, who you've likely heard of if you've read about this subject, but um, also includes other minority groups. So relations between the ruling Communist Party in China and ethnic minority groups in Xinjiang, particularly Uyghurs, have been pretty fraught since 1949, which is when the, um, the CCP came to power. But um, the period of time that I have primarily written about has been this current period since 2016. So basically, during that time period, the government sort of using the rationale of um, you know protecting domestic stability and national security has embarked on this policy where they have detained upwards of 1 million Uyghurs and other Muslim minorities in mass internment camps. And um, they've also jailed a similar number, according to a New York Times analysis. On top of that, they've put in place heavy-handed uh, mass surveillance technologies, including checkpoints everywhere, iris scans, facial recognition cameras, cell phone scanning and surveillance, surveillance of all electronic devices and so forth, as well as heavy-handed human policing. On top of that, in the past couple of years, there have been an increasing number of reports of forced labor in the region used by companies in the apparel industry and, and uh, in cotton farming and other industries. And recently, there have been a number of worrying reports about systematic sexual violence in the camps targeting women and um, also of women having their reproductive rights violated, um, being forced to take birth control or have IDs implanted or even being forced to have abortions. So this is kind of the situation there. The US and other countries have labeled this a genocide and um, the US and EU and some other countries have put a number of sanctions on companies in Xinjiang as well as officials found to be directly responsible for the atrocities. The scale of the atrocities is difficult to comprehend. I mean, how do you start reporting a story like this? Like you're working for BuzzFeed, You've been covering all kinds of things for Reuters for four years. How do you decide to take that story on and then how do you do it? I guess when I started reporting on this, I didn't really think that I was taking on anything. Like, I don't think anyone did. So back in 2017, basically I had moved to BuzzFeed. I had it in my mind that I wanted to do some reporting out in Xinjiang. When I was at Reuters, there was a different reporter on my team that was sort of doing most of that. So I, I was interested in the subject, but never really got to do too much on it. Although I'd done some reporting in the previous like four years, I guess. But like basically we heard in the beginning of 2017 that things were sort of starting to get significantly worse for Uyghurs in the region. And one of the things I heard was that there was a colleague who worked at a different news agency and he had just gone on a trip with a photographer and they had hired a driver. And this was like a several day trip where they had traveled all over the region and done some stories. And on the last day, the driver actually told them, this was great to get to know you, but I might not see you again because I have to go to a, a re-education center. And uh, when I heard that, I was like, well, what is that, right? So there are a number of 
ways to be detained in China that could be termed re-education. But of course, nobody knew that these camps were in existence at that time. So basically, I knew that reporting in Xinjiang would be difficult and even possibly fruitless. I had another friend who had gone to the region like quite recently at that time, and she had gotten so freaked out by the surveillance and like not for herself, but because of the fact that anybody that she would interview would be, you know, talked to by the police. And she was so scared of getting somebody in trouble that she actually came back with nothing. So I didn't want that to happen. So basically, I came up with this plan that I was going to go to Turkey to interview Uyghur exiles. So I wanted to talk to people that had left the region recently and would have some recollection, like a recent recollection of what the situation was there. And just so we're clear, that's because while you are free to go there... Once there, the level of surveillance from the state's very high, both for people that you would be talking to, but also for reporters themselves, right? Like they were tracking your movements, like watching you once you left a hotel, basically. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, so it's it's a big risk. It's not really as much of a risk to the reporter. If you're a foreign passport holder, it's not as much of a risk. But uh, it's a huge risk to your sources, for sure. So it makes it very hard to have like a, you know, an honest conversation with someone. So both for the material that you would get, but also for sort of ethical reasons, you went to Turkey to talk to Uyghur exiles. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So eventually what happened was I was starting to ask all these people, you know, do you know anything about these re-education centers? And finally, I found somebody who was like, oh, I know what that is. There's one near where I used to live in Kashgar. So we talked through where it was. He told me about a landmark that it was like a hotel that was on the northern end of the street. And I went to Xinjiang, I went to Kashgar, and uh, I actually went on foot and found it. And it was marked, like there was a sign there, and it, it was clearly a highly securitized building. So then I was, it was, it was nice because I was able to then go around and talk to the neighbors and say, you know, what is this? And they confirmed what I thought. And then that was sort of the first story that we published. What was that moment like for you personally? I mean, did you feel like you had stumbled onto some hugely devastating thing? Or were you like, oh, okay, I guess there's one of these things and I found it. The thing is, at that time, we didn't understand the scale. People getting arbitrarily detained in China, unfortunately, is not that uncommon. And for Uyghurs, it's really not uncommon, even before then. So I knew that this was something new that was happening. But it, it hadn't really hit me at the time that this is something that is happening at this huge scale that is going to devastate this entire group of people. Having said that, I think on that trip, like just seeing the surveillance architecture that they had built was really scary to me because I had never I never experienced anything like that. Like I had been to Myanmar before it opened up. Like I've been to North Korea. Like I've just never experienced like that level of anxiety that like everybody on the street seemed to have that I saw in Kashgar in 2017. So what do you do next? So basically what happened was we published the story. Story got a lot of views, which things on BuzzFeed tend to do because there's no paywall. And it, it of course had a photo in it of uh, one of these internment camps. And um, I got a bit of a talking to from some Chinese authorities, but didn't really think too much of it. That's not too abnormal. I know it's, that, uh, I'm sorry to cut you off. I know it's not abnormal for you, but I have no idea what those conversations are like. Like, what's, what's a bit of a talking to from Chinese officials? How does that happen? What is that like? 
Basically what happened was I, so I got back to Beijing and after we published the story, I think I was, I was actually on a trip back home to the States and I got a call from somebody who identified themselves as a Beijing government official. And they said, could you come and have coffee? And um, I said, sure. So I show up, it's a Korean coffee place that is best known for their waffles that have whipped cream on them. I really like this place, actually. And uh, the guy shows up, and we get inside the coffee shop, and we sit down, and he shows me his ID, which says that he's with the State Security Bureau in Beijing. So I did not expect this. Uh, State Security Bureau is sort of analogous to maybe the FBI or something in the, in the okay. US, but it's, it's much more powerful than that. But they care about domestic security and threats to domestic security in China. So once he flashed you that badge, is that when you ordered the waffle with whipped cream? <laughs> I deeply regret not ordering like a huge waffle during this conversation, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I just didn't know what they, you know, I didn't know what they wanted. It was, um, it was very strange. And then, um, Mika, in that, in that moment, are you nervous? Like, do you think something's going to happen? Part of what I, I have no feel for is your own sense of safety and I don't know how scared you'd be in, in a situation like that. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, like, now looking back, I think, like, I was a little bit cavalier. Like, you know, I remember, like, before going abroad, I read a memoir of um, a woman who was the Newsweek bureau chief in Iran for a long time. And she told this story about how she had a minder in Tehran. And she would be so scared when this minder would come to her house and, and hassle her and stuff like that. And he would just intimidate her and stuff. And I thought, like, oh, my God, is, is that what it's going to be like? But then I was now... Never, I never really felt intimidated. Like, I have to say, like, there were a lot of in attempts to intimidate me, for sure, just like for everybody, I think. But for me, like, at that time, like, China was not a country that was sort of arbitrarily detaining American journalists, like, all the time. It just wasn't something that was normal. Like, they would, what was expected is that if they were really upset with you, they would revoke your visa and then you'd have to go, which, of course, that sucks a lot. But to have your life upended like that, but it's not the same as being jailed or something. Mm -hmm. So that was before. I mean, now there are quite a few cases that I could point to, most famously of the two Canadian men, Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor, who were detained as sort of part of this kind of larger diplomatic spat that had nothing to do probably with either of them. And like that to me is really scary because that's something you can't control. You know, I think that that happened like after I left China. And I think if that were happening now, I might have seen it in a different way. But in any case, I think like when I was in that coffee shop, kind of like my alarm bells went up because there are security officials who routinely talk to journalists and stuff like that. And I had interacted with those people before, but like state security agents, I never really come across people who explicitly identified themselves that way. So I thought, mm -hmm. okay, so maybe something is up here, but I just didn't really know what it was about. And in the end, they mostly just asked about you know, my contacts and stuff like that. Obviously, I didn't really give any info, but it was quite a cordial meeting. And then um, I just left, basically. And then what happens next? You know, aside from regretting not having the waffle, what do you do next? So the next thing that happened was I had an annual meeting with officials from the foreign ministry in China. And 
that's something that's like quite routine like uh, because I was the only one representing my news org like you know we had people that we would meet with there regularly just to keep in touch and then they did say we're not really happy with your reporting on human rights and I said well if there's any errors in it we do want to know about it and you you know please feel free to point them out like anytime and they said well there were no errors per se but it was wrong nonetheless like they said something to that extent which I was like all right um fair enough <laughs> and you know it was quite a friendly meeting you know we talked for like an hour and a half or something and then most of the time we talked about you know other social issues and stuff like that I'm always interested to hear their perspective and stuff and I did ask at the end are you genuinely interested to hear their perspective yeah yeah it's so rare to have a frank conversation with like Chinese government officials, it's it's quite rare to have a lengthy sit down with them as a journalist because there's always that kind of that's there's a very adversarial dynamic there. Right, but could you trust anything they were saying? It's not about trust, is it? Like, I mean, most sources you you shouldn't go in with an attitude of trusting them wholesale. I don't think like you should always have a bit of a, a skeptical mind. I think no matter who you're talking to. So it's not so much that I. I talk to them to get information. It's more that I talk to them to see how do they think about things and what what's important to them and like, you know, what's their view of the world. I, I genuinely think that's really important. Like, I think it's particularly important now because there's so many journalists that have been thrown out of China. There's like very few people that are able to actually have those conversations. And like now we're making these kind of like in the US, there are these kind of seismic decisions that are being made about China policy. And I think if you don't talk to the people that run the country, it's it's a problem. All right. So you have this like cordial hour and a half meeting in which you're interested in their nonsense. And then you just like. No. And then I said, then I said, is there going to be any issues with my visa? Like it's coming up due and I need another one. And they said, no, 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 just just submit it. They said, submit it after the spring festival holiday, which is a week long holiday in China. And they were like, uh, just make sure you submit it after the holiday so that we have time to get to it and whatever. So I was like, fine. So the first day after the holiday, I submitted my visa application to the Chinese consulate in New York. They respond saying they received it. Okay, so I have an email that says they received the application, which became important later. Left the country for a different story and ended up getting stuck for a while because this visa process kept getting held up. And then eventually, like, I called them, I think the next month or something, I called them and was like, you know, what happened to this application? And they were like, well, we never got it. And I was like, you did get it because you emailed me. Um, so I, <laughs> that was the first moment where I was like, something's gone wrong here. Like, this is not right. And then later we got an email from the Chinese consulate in New York that said, basically, we regret to inform you that we, we don't approve your new visa application. So that was that. Yeah. And what was that like for you? I mean, that's essentially banning you from this country that you had dedicated, what, off and on 10 years of your life to? Yeah, like seven, yeah, seven years, I think, all told. Yeah, um, it was devastating. It was completely devastating. Like, my whole life was there. I felt like uh, this is where my I've built my professional expertise. Like, I was there for most of my 20s. You know, I was like, how am I going to be a China journalist that's not in China? Like, that's ridiculous. And all my friends were there. Like all my stuff was there. My apartment was like full of things. Like I had a carry on suitcase with me. So I just didn't know what I was gonna do. Um, Where were you when you got that news? I was in Sydney, actually. I was working out of our Sydney bureau for a little bit while I was waiting, yeah. Okay, so then like you're like uh, in Sydney, you get this news, go for a walk, look at the opera house. That's my only frame of reference for Sydney. 
what the hell do you do? I mean, yeah, I freaked out. Like, I really freaked out. <laughs> like, I have to be honest. Like, I cried a lot. Like, I really did. And um, it was horrible because that eventually, of course, like, we had to make it public, which I did. And then um, it was really horrible because, I, I like, my phone was, like, blowing up. And it's kind of got out of control. Like, the thing is, like... I think it would be different now because like now they've thrown out so many journalists that there's only like there's only a handful of Anglophone journalists even left in the PRC from what I'm told. But back then, this was pretty unusual. Like they would kick out maybe one journalist a year, like maximum. That was sort of the average pace. And uh, because of that, like the State Department issued a statement about it. And then Reuters, like my former employer, did a piece like, like pretty much like it became like a news thing, which I did not anticipate. And then, yeah, I started getting invites from conservative media and stuff, which I didn't really think was going to happen. It was like, <laughs> I wanted to be like, I'm not like an anti-China, China journalist. Like, I think that's like messed up when people are like that. Like, I don't have a bias, but um, I feel like it sort of came off that way, maybe. Did any part of you regret having done the reporting? No, 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 absolutely not. Because I think, that you know, the second you start to to think in that mode, like you're already lost. Like I know people in China that will actually change their reporting in order to stay in the country. There's not that many people like that, but there are some. And I just feel like you're doing a disservice to the reader. Like, who are you serving here? You know, you're kind of just like, if you, if you want to do that, go and do some other job. Like you don't have to be a journalist. So here's the moment that I've been the most curious about in your story, which is you get kicked out. You just said like, how is I going to be a China journalist and not live in China? It's totally ridiculous. Like, help me understand how you decided to keep reporting this story without being able to go to the country. Like, how did you not just be like, all right, well, I'm just going to take a new beat. I'm going to do something else. What drove you to stay on the story? There are a few reasons. I think one thing is that BuzzFeed's actually pretty agnostic about a lot of the work we do in terms of just like subject matter. They give us like really a lot of leeway. So at the time I was reporting on lots of stuff and then China was like one of the things that I wrote about because I already had this expertise and I was interested in it. So I didn't feel like I was being like shoehorned into just being a China journalist, which was nice because I could do other stuff. The other thing is that a lot of the reporting on the Xinjiang issue in particular was already being done with interviews with exiles. So I had already done that when I had gone to Turkey and then there were mm -hmm. kind of more opportunities to keep doing that. The big thing that I was really missing was that I couldn't go and drive to these camps or whatever, you know, and I couldn't go and see what it looked like. And I, I do think that's a significant loss, but that's something that I kind of tried to overcome, I guess, in the subsequent work. Yeah, I mean, you figured out a pretty ingenious way around that. When did it occur to you to start looking at satellite images as a way of basically being a proxy for being on the ground? Basically, there were some people that were already working with satellite images at the time. I had worked on projects where satellite imagery was used, but I was definitely not like an expert in it or anything like that. But I was quite interested. And then... Um, Actually, around the time that I was like losing my visa, like that summer, I had applied, like kind of cold applied on the internet to this 
workshop, which was to build a, um, it was kind of like a guide for citizen journalists who wanted to become better investigators. And this, this was basically like a hackathon kind of format. Like it was just like we would cobble together this resource. And it was going to take place at, like at a nunnery in Montenegro. And I really wanted to go and spend a week at a nunnery in Montenegro and like work with citizen journalists. Like I thought it would be really fun. They were nice enough to accept me. I went and then that's where I met Allison Killing who ended up being my co-author on the project. So Allison is a architect and a geospatial analyst. She's done a lot of like work that touches on human rights. Like she worked on um, a project that relates to the U European migration crisis, but she had never really worked on China before or Uyghurs. And while we were there, we were hanging out a lot, you know, eating a lot of food at this nunnery and like going for afternoon swims and working together <laughs> and stuff. And I was just talking her ear off about this whole thing. And she was really interested. Like she thought, you know, why not? Like, why can't we find these camps in satellite images? And I think we both had this idea, like, you know, we want to find all of them. Like, I just thought at that time, like, you know, this is the 21st century. It's, it's crazy that we're talking about a million people, a million people, right, who have been detained with zero paperwork, like people being detained with sacks over their heads, with no word to their family, just disappearing, like in the middle of the night. And we have no idea where they are. Like, how is that Wait, even it, possible, right? And essentially, the entire world had no idea where they yeah. were. Exactly. Like there were some camps that were known about because people like journalists had visited them or somebody had left this camp and then they had remembered where it was or like kind of other like kind of anecdotal ways like that. But that was like a small subset of the total group of camps. And there were kind of like wildly ranging estimates on how many camps there really were. I think it was widely believed at the time that there were something like 1,200. So that was sort of our starting point. And then that's how Allison and I came to work together on this project. And then once you got into the project, were there moments of breakthrough where you figured out some way to piece this stuff together? Like walk me through this sort of investigation and, and, and the process a bit because I, I don't understand it very well. Yeah, the first problem that we had was how are we going to find these camps in this like geographically huge region? So satellite maps are divided up into tiles, which are basically like the boxes that you see when you go on Google Earth, right? Like each box is a tile. So if we were going to go through every tile in Xinjiang, it would be like millions and millions and millions. It just would not be possible. So how do you narrow that data set, right? So we had some theories about how we could do this. You know, initially I thought, you know, maybe we could even do a machine learning process. And then like we figured out that that was not gonna be possible. Basically what ended up happening was that Allison was sort of playing around on Baidu Maps, which is, uh, if you're unfamiliar with it, Baidu is like Google, but in China, Google's blocked in China and they have their own um, search platform, which is called Baidu. And Baidu has a lot of similar stuff to Google. So they have their own maps product. So. Allison was looking at Baidu maps and she realized that in the locations where we already knew that there were camps, there were these like gray squares that were appearing over the top of the location instead of the actual satellite image. In Chinese, it said like, we cannot return this image. And you know, that could be for other reasons, like in theory, right? Like it could be because it was cloudy that day or something and they just don't have the image. But um, it turns out that in cases where they don't have good imagery, there's another type of gray tile that appears and it says something completely different. So we hypothesized, I believe now, I believe correctly that um, these gray tiles were occurring because of Chinese government censorship. So we thought, what if we find 
all of the places that are covered by gray tiles and use that as our kind of starting data set. So we did like kind of a test run where we looked at a bunch of locations where we already knew there were camps just to see if the gray tiles would appear. And in all the cases, I believe they did. So then after that, we started working with Christo Buschek, who's a developer um, who's worked with Bellingcat and other organizations to basically collect the locations in Baidu Maps where there were these gray tiles present. And then we then compared those to Google Earth as well as like other kind of imagery providers that um, are outside of China and therefore not subject to Chinese censorship. And we found the locations and then we, we saw what was, what was really there. So it was a way of kind of like narrowing down that massive data set of tiles to something that was significantly smaller. So I should caveat that by saying, it's not the case that every space where there was a gray tile was a camp. Like a lot of them, clearly we're not like that was really just the starting point for us like after that we went and weeded through like lots and lots of locations Allison really took the lead on this because um, that's her specialty and there were a lot that were kind of obviously not uh, not camps like places where there were no structures for instance or places where there were structures but they were clearly something else like th there was no security features for instance so mm -hmm. we got down to a much smaller set of locations that we believe are camps and prisons what you ended up putting together is this four-part series that sort of pairs some of that image work with stories on the ground. And I guess I'm, I'm interested in that process, like how you try and pull something that vast together into like a, a sort of comprehensible narrative that also has like actual people at the, at the heart of it. Like for something like that, it can feel very bloodless without any people in it. And I think that, like you said, it's a problem of scale. Like it's even for me, like having written about this for so long, I still can't really conceptualize what a million people behind bars means. Like, what does that mean for your community? Like for your town, for your school, for your workplace, when like, we're talking about, you know, maybe one in 25 people, if you're talking about Uyghurs, like, I mean, it's, it has to have a huge impact on, like, on the family level, like on everything, right? So I can't conceptualize that. And how present is that piece of this for you? Like, you're sitting there, you're looking at, like, these images with Allison, and, like, I imagine that it's both devastating and exciting at the same time, you know? It's weird because, like, for Allison, like, because she's never been to China, I think she was able to sort of separate herself a little bit better. I would have thought it would be the opposite. Like, I would have thought looking at these satellite images all day must be, like, you know, pretty soul-crushing because they're prisons, right, in the end. Like, it's... Like, it's really horrible. They're secret prisons. Yeah, exactly. Like, she was able to maintain, like, kind of a more professional distance, I think, from the story. For me, a lot of the work I was doing was about interviewing. And it can be, I think it can be very emotionally kind of taxing. And then also, like, you, you really can't help but kind of connect to people, I think. So I probably had a different response, I think. Yeah, tell me about that a little bit more. Like, what was that emotional connection for you? I mean, for me, like I had been reporting on this story for so long and I had met like a lot of people that were affected, like either their family members had vanished or they themselves were a former detainee. Uh, I think almost all of the people we interviewed for this series were former detainees themselves. And yeah, I've had, I, I mean, I don't even know how to say it. Like I've, I've had kind of so many experiences that were just like, intensely emotional like with with people um it's a tough one because i i try to be really conscious about not wanting to like re-traumatize people how do you do that 
there are some people that don't want to talk about things. And I always try to make it very clear at the outset of the interview, if you want to stop, just tell me and we'll stop. I also, obviously, I mean, it should go without saying, but I just try to be a human being. Like, if, you know, if somebody wants water or like they look like they need, need a glass of water and just chill or like have a cup of tea or talk about something else, like I'm going to do that. Like, I feel like my time is a resource that I'm, I'm infinitely kind of willing to spend um, in situations like this. Um, so I just try to give people space and I try not to kind of badger them. I think the flip side of it is that a lot of people want to talk like very intensely like they it's, it's almost like therapy because like it's people like in this situation they're an ex-detainee they've had this incredibly traumatic experience they feel like nobody cares like i think a lot of people have experienced this in different ways like if you go through this particular like really formative experience in your life like whether good or bad you come home and people just don't want to talk about it to the extent that it occupies your mind and i think a lot of the ex-detainees are are kind of going through that and like a lot of times like i would sit down to talk to someone and they would be like okay do you have six hours because that's how long it's going to take to tell this story and i'd be like okay, yeah, I do have six hours. Um, so I think there's a sense of responsibility to it. Like, I feel like for me coming in as an outsider and publishing work about this, like the very, very least I can do is sit there and listen to somebody talk if, if that's what they want. I have another question about these interviews. So I, I understand the sort of need you feel to not re-traumatize people through these conversations and also balance that with this tremendous desire on some people's part to share what they've been through. But there's another piece of it that I'm interested in too, which is like, you know, you and Allison are looking on these maps and building models of these prisons all remotely. But then you also have to like paint the picture of what life inside these camps is like just through these interviews with people who have been there. How do you do that in an interview? It was a really fascinating process basically like i spent a lot of time talking to people about what they remembered just from a spatial perspective like the landmarks that would be around these camps i interviewed one guy who was like i remember like my daughter went to middle school at this camp this was like a, a middle school that had been uh fitted with all this security architecture and had been turned into a camp there were some cases like that um i mean I quickly learned that talking to people about space is like really hard because no one can estimate like how big a space is. So then like mm -hmm. Allison suggested that I asked them like how many twin beds would fit in the room or like if you put your arms out, like would they touch the walls? Sort of questions like that. It, it was sort of like weirdly liberating for people, I think, to remember these places because I think they correctly know that they're, they're doing something positive by helping other people understand what these places are. I would ask people to like draw what they remembered and stuff. It was like, it was almost like I was oh, really? running like, yeah, I felt like I was running an ex-detainee art camp, I think at times, like <laughs> it was very interesting. Yeah, like people would draw things and as they remember them and they would point out different places and be like, well, this was the canteen and this was the, you know, the classroom, these were the gates, this is where the guards slept and stuff like that. And then I would go back to Allison and say, okay, well, this is what he said. And then she would pull up the satellite image and then we would sort of compare them back and forth. And um, I think the best piece we did kind of using this technique in part is um, we did a piece on this camp in a town called Mongolkore, which is a really beautiful mountain town um, that sits on the Kazakh border. And um, this was like this. That was part three of the series, I think. Correct. It was part three. And it was like this really intimidating looking camp that was um, sitting in the mountains. You could see it in the satellite image. And we were very lucky in that we found 
three men that were held at this same camp. And the time that they stayed there, like sort of overlapped, but they didn't know each other at the camp. They only came to know each other when all three of them ended up in Kazakhstan. Yeah, and there was this process, like I met them and then they actually brought the location to us. Like they had figured out where it was and they were able to corroborate some details about this camp. And um, they were able to like fill in these details that like we never could have gotten from just the satellite image alone. Like, like for instance, mobility in these camps is very restricted. So if you ask somebody how many rooms was there in the floor, they won't be able to tell you because they, you know, they wouldn't have the freedom to be able to even walk up and down and try to count. Um, right, they're so, in the rooms like 23 hours a day. Exactly. So we found out very quickly that almost everybody described having one window in their in the room where they would say the cell where they would say so allison basically would would count these windows like across and then she would ask like was there a stairwell and that was one of the ways that we figured out how many rooms were were in these buildings what's the impact on you of having all those conversations does it take a toll yeah i mean i try not to center myself in this because i think the trauma felt by the entire community of uyghurs as well as kazakhs and and other groups that are affected by this is like it's so enormous it's something that they have to think about every single day. And like, you know, I mean, th there are people who have relatives in these camps and some who have them perhaps as a consequence of them speaking out abroad, right? As retaliation. Like, I mean, I can't even imagine like that, just the level of, of pain that that must cause. But I guess for me, like to a, a much lesser extent, just as someone who has like heard a lot of these stories and um, is in touch with a lot of people who have gone through this, like, I mean, yeah, like it, it's it's devastating. Like it, it absolutely is. Like I think in the kind of in the early years when I was covering this, it took less of a toll. But I think just in this particular series that came out last year, it was a lot more intense specifically because I was talking to ex-detainees. Like um, I think there was one time where we did an interview and uh, the woman was ta we talked a lot about sexual violence in the camps and it was like a six hour interview and we, we um, it was sort of chilly when we had gone in the apartment. And then when we left, like the whole area was just covered in snow. I can't explain why, but it was such a moving moment that I just like, I almost started to cry. And then my, my interpreter and I went to lunch and we didn't, we didn't even talk for like the entire hour. And I'm pretty good friends with him. So, but like, there have been a few times like that where I've come back from trips and just seen the kind of like, when you, when you hear about some of these experiences, like, like torture and abuse, confinement, just the daily humiliation of being in these places for, for just no reason. Like when you hear about the trauma that that reeks on people's lives, like really ordinary people who have very ordinary jobs, like, um, and then coming back to London and just seeing people go off on their commutes and stuff like that. It's just like, it's such a kind of like dissonance that it's, it be, it's like very emotional. I think it's just, you just wonder like, well, you know, why do these things happen? Like it's, it's very hard to explain, I think. Yeah. I mean, reading the series, like it, it is, it's so inexplicable. It's just inexplicable horror. Yeah. And it did make me wonder. I mean, I, I appreciate you're not trying to center yourself, although like this interview is, is with you and I'm, I'm interested in your experience of it. You know, like it did make me wonder what it's like for you to let go grab drinks in London, you know, and like bullshit with your friends knowing that this is happening. How do you do both? How do you live in both worlds? Yeah, I mean, I'm incredibly lucky that I even have the choice to live in both worlds. I have to say, like... 
it's weird like I've tried to stop talking about it in social situations like people will ask me and stuff but it's just sort of like I, I hate to say this but I think just people will understand this which is I, I think it's kind of like when you get back from study abroad like I don't like you know you have like a great semester in Paris and like all you want to talk about is Paris or whatever but nobody actually cares or like they have no frame of reference to understand this experience right and like it's weird to compare it to that but it is a little bit like that because like it's hard for me to talk about it and then recognize that actually like people don't really like it's, it's easy to say like oh that's horrible but then like it's it's hard to con for people to connect to it I think emotionally and like there, there's a lot of good reasons for that but um that sort of made it a little bit harder but you know like I mean I just try to keep going I mean there's not that many reporters that that work on this so I think it's it's important that the the kind of like few people that have invested um, time in, in it, like continue to do it. And I, I guess I'm one of those people. What has it been like to get this kind of recognition? I mean, I heard you were pretty surprised with the Pulitzer. Like, what does it mean to you to have the work recognized in this way? And how do you connect that to trying to bridge that gap between the scale of the atrocity that's happening there and how hard it is for the rest of the world to wrap its collective head around it. The recognition is great. Obviously, um, I think it's been amazing for our whole newsroom because it's um, it's the first Pulitzer Prize that BuzzFeed has won. And it, it underscores the fact that you need a tremendous amount of institutional support to pull off a project like this, like ranging from the security people who helped me with my trips to Kazakhstan to um, the photo editor, our graphics people, copy editors. There are just like so many people that were involved in this project and I'm really happy that the newsroom got that recognition. I guess having said that, like we don't obviously we don't do it for the prizes. Like I never expected that I was gonna win this prize. Like it just never occurred to me. I wasn't even watching the live stream. But um it's a reflection of the fact that, you know, the committee that judges the Pulitzer Prizes recognizes the importance of this issue. And I, I really do hope that it will bring more readers to it and uh, more people to understand the significance of it. I think with BuzzFeed, not everyone is familiar with the brand. So obviously, I think we do great journalism, but like there are a lot of people that write it off because we were known first as an entertainment side and stuff like that. But I think the, having the credibility of, of the Pulitzer Prizes, you know, it hopefully will change that in some people's minds, maybe change their perception of, of the coverage and how reliable the coverage is. Meg, I'm going to let you go in one second. I have one more question for you, which has been just rattling around in my head since we've been talking, which is when we were talking about you sitting in the uh, the coffee shop talking to the um, Chinese version of the FBI, you were saying how important it was to approach this reporting without bias. And I wonder how, after engaging and uncovering the scale of this atrocity in the way that you have how you can maintain a position of no bias when it comes to the Chinese government? For me, when I start a project, I think it's really important to be open-minded about it and not to construct a narrative where there is a hero and a villain. Obviously, in this case, we're talking about genocide, right? So it's very hard to look at that and say there's no heroes and no villains. But if you start a project with a mindset that whatever, the, the ex-detainee or the activist or something is, is the hero and the Chinese government is the villain, so for sake of argument, if you did that, then you would miss things that somebody like an ex-detainee said to you that either might be false, 
you know, because of exaggeration or might be false because they misremembered or for some other reason, right? You would just be taking all of their words at face value. And then conversely, like the villain of the story, you would be putting them into a box before you even heard what they had to say, right? So mm -hmm. I would love it if the Chinese government was willing to engage with us more to actually give info on all of these facilities. We have sent them a complete list of everything that we found. We've sent detailed questions for every single story. They don't respond to the questions bullet by bullet. Like they will respond in kind of a general way with a statement, but they won't actually give any information that builds on what they have said publicly. I think it would be a really positive thing for everyone if they would give more information and allow more transparency. So that's kind of what I'm about. Like to me, like whether the government can be cast as a villain or not, I think if I were gonna do that in the story, I think it would weaken it. Like our stories are really about the facts on the ground and then also how people experience the facts on the ground, like those, those two things. And like, I, I think it really has to center on that. That makes sense to me. I guess it's interesting to hear you sort of defend it so clearly when it feels like what you have been reporting on, which is genocide on a scale larger than any since World War II, to not have that hardened into um, complete villainy. I guess, like, think about it a different way. Like, if you were in the coffee shop, right? This is a meeting I more or less had to have, right? Mm -hmm. I was happy to have it, but I did also have to have it. So if you were sitting in that coffee shop, some people would go in there and have a very adversarial conversation with the foreign ministry and say, you're abusing human rights, like you're doing this, you're doing that. I know journalists that would do that, right? And I have to ask like, like what for? Like, what are you getting out of it? You're not changing their mind. You're not gonna change their policy on it. If you go in and you're open-minded, you see them as a human being that is part of a bureaucracy that is enacting policies that you may disagree with. Like, if you see them as a human being first, like, as a journalist, you're going to get way more out of the conversation. Like, you're going to get way more clarity. And then that person is going to respect you because you approach them as, as a person, like, even, a, even as a person that you might disagree with, right? And that could be the start of a longer relationship. Like, that to me is how source building should work like it shouldn't always have to be adversarial like i mean obviously there are lots of moments for adversarial conversations when it comes to journalism but i think in kind of like that type of interaction it's far more productive to just be open-ended and, and open-minded even if i might privately have my own views mega thank you so much for talking to me thank you so much for having me on Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor this week was Gabriella Saldivia and our intern was Susan Peterson. Thanks to them. Thanks to our sponsors, MailChimp. And thanks so much to Mega for taking the time to walk me through this reporting and the last couple years of her life. Her four-part series that won the Pulitzer is in the show notes. If you haven't read it yet, I really encourage you to take the time and do so. It's, um, it's staggering work. We'll see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. 
And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com. <laughs> 